0: You ever hear that one they say keep talking wise?
1: No. <laughs> I feel like I feel that. like
0: I feel like I have this from like a Cohen Brothers movie or something like that. Maybe. It's like it's like that that kind of language that you know gangsters old timesy gangsters spoke but like with Cohen Brothers movies you're never sure whether they're just making it up or it's it's actual <laughs> old time language. Keep talking wise. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's kind of funny actually.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I don't know.
1: It is a reminder for me to kind of catch up on my Cohen brothers movies.
0: I mean, I, I kind of feel like Corona COVID lockdown has been a, a golden age for you in movies, but it's not it, the it, right
1: ones apparently. Well no,
0: it just begs the question is like, have you ever watched movies before this? Like <laughs>
1: <laughs> No, I I mean I'm definitely a movie watcher, but I'm not great on the classics. Um, so the ones that everyone thinks that everyone else should watch, like the big Lebowski. Yeah. Those are the kinds of movies I never really got into or like Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or the usual suspects.
0: No, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, I mean, or, is it, chi- is, yeah. or
1: Chinatown or okay. last tango in Paris or last tango in Halifax.
0: Last tango in Halifax. What's that about? <laughs> instead of get wait, the butter, just, get wait, the butter. Just, it's it's get the salmon.
1: I wonder if I just made that up. Let me just uh, Google that right now. Let's yeah. Go in Halifax. Okay, it's definitely r- real. Okay, is so it a, is it like um,
0: a pornography or something? No, <laughs> no, that's last. time It's a British. Paris.
1: Com- it's a British comedy drama series that began on BBC One in 2012. So it's not a classic, apparently. It's on Netflix. So maybe I don't know why that came to mind.
0: Okay. Yeah. Some sort of association But so did you Did you avoid these movies Because you um, You were Feeling contrarian Because
1: the crowds Yeah The crowds were telling me To watch them And I didn't want to Follow the crowds
0: And now that they're Just Just famous The crowds aren't Forcing you anymore So you can (laughs) Now it's just Cultural education look
1: Yeah I just feel like These are things That I should be aware of Mm -hmm. Um, So as As many of my Our our listeners will know I don't even know If we're recording right now No we are Oh Okay (laughs) that um what i watched mostly during lockdown were things like ingmar bergman the swedish existentialist director yeah um i don't know if that is really in line with the crowds or the masses probably not but i felt like that's something i really had to watch and that if i didn't watch those movies that something would be permanently lacking
0: i mean i i guess that's sort of true but but did you did you so I, i've never I've never systematically watched Bergman i've had I've yeah. had friends who've inflicted Bergman on me and I've somewhat enjoyed it and uh, but I mean, sis,
1: but here's the thing systematically watching Bergman is not a thing but, but it's no a thing one. that
0: you undertook, isn't it? like yes. you, you spent an entire three months watching Bergman
1: <laughs> exactly, which makes me a rather odd person like yeah. I would not recommend anyone in normal times to systematically watch him because he's actually not easy to watch. It was almost like I. It, there was something masochistic about it. I, I maybe I felt the need to punish myself for my sins. Mm.
0: Is that is that a thing in Islam? Masochism <laughs> over sins? No, I think you're hanging out way too much with Catholics. Yeah, I was going like. to
1: say that's that's yeah, that's more the Catholics um, who I've come to like and appreciate much more in recent years.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah.
1: There's even a, there's even a joke on Twitter uh, as of late, like Shadi just Mm-hmm.
0: It's a thing. It's a meme. You become a meme on Twitter. I, I knew you're famous. Not this famous, though.
1: It's a very specialized meme. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. Well, you know, uh, since I guess we have been recording, I should say before I forget, because I am our chief marketing officer, that um, you, sh- if you like this episode, and it's hard to know if you will, because that's going to be like an hour from now. But if you do end up liking it, I would strongly urge you to consider becoming a member of Wisdom of Crowds um, by uh, paying a very small amount each month. And if you do that, you'll actually get access to our special bonus episode, which will come after this, which will only be available for members. So to subscribe, all you really have to do is go to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. That's all you got to do, guys. That's All it. you got to do. Well,
0: and then enter your credit card and some someone <laughs> on top yes. of that.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: Don't just make them go to the page. They feel like yeah. they've done their duty. There's more. <laughs>
1: That's a very good point, Damir. <laughs> uh, you know, I was actually, I had this, um, this fantasy as I was thinking about this marketing aspect that, Maybe one day we'll actually be able to, you know how in some podcasts, the person will be talking about like philosophy or like Nietzsche or John Rawls or whatever, and then they'll just completely do a 180 and say, oh, um, Nietzsche said God, God is dead. Oh, time for a little ad that we got to do. There's this kind of underwear, which is actually very comfortable that you should consider buying. Like they're, I swear.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah, that's, that's a level of success to aspire to that we can inflict underwear ads on our audience.
1: (laughs) One day, I mean, but but perhaps more realistically, because we should probably get ads that are more in line with our aesthetic and what we actually believe in. So I was actually thinking about Domino's pizza (laughs) as being something that we could share with our viewers. And I actually, this is not a joke, two nights, sorry, not two nights ago, um, Three nights ago I had Domino's pizza for the first time in maybe two months. Mm. And there was something so therapeutic about it. It was a Sunday night. I just wanted to just enjoy myself before the week started and things got intense again. And I and it was really it was really great.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I haven't had Domino's since you you well, you didn't force me to do it, but you encouraged me to do it however many months ago that was.
1: And you had regrets, I believe. I did. I
0: had I had many regrets. I mean, it could have been worse, like like digestive regrets. None of that actually happened. I was just I really was not impressed. Especially <laughs> after it was it was. So I mean, I'm I'm ruining our marketing here, but, uh, yeah, I I, I could I could do to never have Domino's again. I think.
1: <laughs> That's sad, Demir. It is a little sad, and I guess. And, you know, so maybe just as a way to start, because uh, I did tell you a little bit earlier that, uh, you know, I, I was angry today, Demir.
0: Just today or you've been angry? I couldn't tell from the, the text. You said we can talk about your anger. And I don't know if it was about your anger issues or...
1: <laughs> well, it's a good question. Um, I was, I've really, tr- I've really been trying to be careful about spending time on Twitter the last few days and today i sort of returned a little bit and engaged and saw what people were saying and spent quite frankly too much time on twitter yeah um and i think there was something very refreshing that as people were losing their minds starting on friday and i assume this will come out tomorrow which will be thursday so you know about 6 days ago um that uh trump had just gotten covid and people lost their minds. Yeah. And I, I saw signs of it. And on our group chat, people were sharing the craziest things that people were saying. And it was a reminder that like one thing I really am angry about vis-a-vis Trump specifically and why we have to get rid of him and why he has to lose is because he really brings out the worst in his opponents. And now there's a question of whether to blame Trump for that or to blame his opponents for taking the bait and falling into his trap. But regardless, Trump is a chaos agent who does this. He causes us to be like this. But it's also sad, I think, that we have some of the best and the brightest of our our generation. And I use that term somewhat ironically, but also in some sense seriously, because we do have otherwise brilliant political analysts, historians who should know better, journalists who should know better, but you see them obsessing over every twist and turn in the Trump COVID story. And I'm like, is this really the way you want to spend your life? Is this, is this what is, I mean, we'll look back, I think um, maybe not months from now, but probably years from now. And if anyone will be so inclined to look at the tweets that people were doing during the Trump having COVID era, which I hope will be a short one, because we don't wish harm upon our president and we want him to lose fair and square at an election. So people can say, well, he got over COVID. He was able to fight the rest of the campaign and be energetic. And he lost fair and square and we're done with that. But we'll look back at this moment and say, like, how were people tweeting all of this silliness?
0: Well, so I'm not doing this as a, as a, um, you know, uh, what's it called? uh like a, a convenient vehicle to keep the conversation going. I, I actually don't know what you're talking about. What are people tweeting <laughs> that is that is driving you off the off the uh off the sanity wagon at this point?
1: Um okay. Uh well so one example is the um is the kind of fan fiction that we saw from certain journalists. I don't want to name names.
0: Okay. That's fine.
1: Except for Gabriel Sherman's name. Okay. (laughs) A Vandy fair who was, so this kind of like, Oh, um, where people are, he had these tweets and then he wrote an article or two that drew on this where, uh, Trump had these videos where he was coming out and being like the strong man, like, Oh, I vanquished COVID. And, I mean, some of it was obviously silly, but I I kind of look at Trump as an amusing character that he should be understood as an entertainer who happens to be our president. Yeah. So I watched those videos and I'm like, oh, that was kind of amusing. Yeah. I laughed a couple times. But then you have someone like Gabriel Sherman, who was apparently quite prominent and actually was, you know, one of his books got optioned for what turned out to be like a showtime mini-series about Roger Ailes on Fox or whatever. So he's not like a random person yep. that he was saying, Oh my God, look at his face when he's, he was in Walter Reed, but before he got out and he was in Walter Reed and he was sharing, he, you know, he looked a little bit tired. And then these people were like, Oh my God, look how tired he looks. Oh my God. He's facing mortality for the first time. This is a side of Trump. We've never seen. He is freaking out and look at this. Um, and he's about, and God knows how much worse it's going to get. What are they hiding from us? His doctors are lying. Everyone's lying. The fascism is a like all this crazy. Wait, wait, how, the how does that,
0: wait, wait, where's the fascism come in? I, I got this like lying because the lying is leads to some sort of fascism or.
1: That they're preparing something behind the oh, scenes oh, and oh, like, yeah. who knows? I don't even know how to explain this stuff because it's so crazy. Mm, mm. Um. But um, anyway, the point I'm making and the fascism stuff was earlier the previous week, like the fascist coups, the Reichstag fires, Mm. um, which uh, not to little marketing thing, I wrote our first our first ever members only short essay. So almost no one read it
0: <laughs> that 's all right,
1: <laughs> but it 's okay because we 're building an audience that 's right, right. that 's right but it was titled um, and we include this in the show in the show notes If anyone wants to revisit they, even if you 're not a member, you can see like the first two sentences, which, if I recall, are very, very profound <laughs> but i I said something it was really about um, it was titled "On Romance and Being in a Constant State of Alarm, so I was trying to explore this phenomenon of these journalists who live in one of the most successful democracies in human history, if not the most successful democracy in human history, i.e. the United States of America. And it's almost like they want us to become an authoritarian state because they're always talking as if fascism is right around the corner and they're using this overblown rhetoric. Um, Michael Beschloss, the um, the eminent historian, was making a direct comparison on national television on I don't know CNN or MSNBC, saying how this is just like Mussolini. Look at the rhetoric Trump is using. We saw this with the uh, Italian fat, you know, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I
0: didn't, I didn't, I didn't say this to you. We haven't talked about this offline, but, but honestly, I, I thought it was it was quite good. It was it was uh it was short, but but almost kind of poetic. You're, it was you musing in that, you know. Oh, just really? To, you thought so? Yeah, to hype the piece a little bit, but not to not not. Oh, wow, well, no, I it because
1: you hadn't actually told me how much you loved it. Yeah,
0: no, I mean, I thought it was it was good. <laughs> uh, the the um uh, what it made me think of is uh, a feeling that I mean, I'm I'm a bit older than you, but. Uh, it was basically, so I don't know what I'm like, I don't know how much older than you, let's not, six, let's, years maybe? six years, maybe. Yeah. So six years. So when I was in, in college in undergrad, um, it was, you know, well enough into the nineties at this point that, you know, the cold war was definitively over and, and communism was properly well and discredited, but there was a sort of feeling as I was doing philosophy undergraduate, there's a feeling that, you know, um. A certain kind of, ah, it's not, it's not right to say, uh, excitement. It's, it's something else like a kind of, uh, toolkit for change, for opposition, for, um, yeah, just sort of opposing the mundane, uh, because Marxism was proven to be such a sham, like definitively because it had collapsed everywhere that had been tried. Well, not everywhere, not China, but in the the main sort of uh, global proponent for it had collapsed so calamitously. Um, we were deprived of a toolkit for opposing something. And I remember even talking to my friends back in the, you know, you're in college, you're, 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 uh, perhaps less intellectually responsible and and there is something about the fact that you're reading these histories of you know even people in the 60s and 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 there's a there's a romance i think it's the right way to you put it in your essay there's a romance to uh sort of sitting at the edge of an abyss and staring in and 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 feeling like it's all teetering and you know, if you're if you're even more romantically inclined, fighting it, you know, fighting the good fight. Um, yes,
1: people want to feel like they're teetering on the edge of the abyss and they want to face the abyss because they want to give their lives more meaning. Right. Because living in a democracy, especially if you're a member of the educated elite and you're like a New York Times journalist or an eminent historian— your life lacks the kind of romance that presumably you'd experience in other contexts. Like most Americans have not lived through a revolution. And even if you have been in a revolution like myself, I'm, it's not quite the same thing because I've always been an American citizen and I could always leave. And there was no, usually not any direct threat against me in particular. So I think for all, a lot of us as Americans, we, um, you know, Every every human being has a desire for romance. And by this I mean romance in the political sense. And it's hard to actually get it. So that's why when Trump was elected, or actually, you know, everyone was talking about the resistance with a capital R, which we don't realize quite how offensive that is to essentially compare yourself to the French resistance um in in World War II or during the Holocaust it 's absurd to even draw those parallels. We are not living through a resistance moment if we want to use the term the way it had been previously and um, and i 'll just maybe um just to give you guys a little bit of a taste uh, who are listening uh, one thing I also liked that I thought this was uh i I like this, but uh, i don 't know if, i don 't know what people really thought about it, but I also wanted to make a direct comparison between um romance romance and political romance ie falling in love um and what we associate with falling in love which is um also i mean to be a little bit crass i mean sex and i i actually quoted um the british historian eric Hobsbawm, who actually likened being in a mass protest or a mass demonstration to um to sexual intercourse. And I'll just maybe quote that here because I I actually had this quote from a long time back and I used it in a piece that I had written about the Egyptian revolution during the Arab Spring. But there was something I think very telling about this quote and it wasn't quite frankly an analogy I I was familiar with before because usually when you're in a mass demonstration I guess you're not usually thinking about romance or or sex. I mean, I, I don't know, I can't speak for others. Um, Not your experience. (laughs) But okay, so here's, and you know, maybe this will just kind of whet your appetites, but even if it doesn't, at least you'll just know a little bit about what I was trying to convey in that piece. Okay. Voting, unless it's perhaps for the first time, uh, (laughs) quit. This is a problem when you quote your own articles.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're very fond of this. You do this almost like every third episode. You you, you love quoting yourself. Even if it's you (laughs) quoting someone else, you're quoting yourself. But anyway, go on.
1: Oh, my God. Okay, so here's what I did. I was quoting the political theorist. This is exactly what you said I would do. I would quote someone else first. Yeah. But the political theorist, David Runciman, Mm -hmm. whose work I think is really quite good, he's talking about a certain kind of person, and he calls these people romantics. Mm -hmm. They want romance in their lives, right? So what do the romantics want? Runciman says they, they, quote unquote, want something, anything to happen, so they can feel themselves at the heart of things. So this is their goal. They want to be in the heart of things. Okay, so then I say, voting, unless it's perhaps for the first time, can't quite reach this level of exuberant passion. And what I'm trying to say here is that what you really should do if you wanna change things in your life or in the life of your country in a political sense is you have to vote. That's what you do in democracies. In non-democracies and authoritarian regimes, you don't really have the option of voting. So you have to take more seriously the mass demonstration where your life might be at risk. But the problem is voting is kind of boring, right? Right. Voting isn't the most exciting thing in the world. So it's hard. And that's one reason that we only have, what, 50 to 60% of Americans who vote um, every four years. And then the quote from Eric Hobsbawm, Here's what he says about mass demonstrations, and this is from his 2002 autobiography, which is called Interesting Times, which is actually a pretty good title for an autobiography. Not bad. Not bad. We'll we'll have to do better when we write our own, right? Indeed. (laughs) Yeah, go on. He says this, quote, unquote, Next to sex, the activity combining bodily experience and intense emotion to the highest degree is the participation in a mass demonstration at a time of great public exaltation. So that's, you know, I, I like that because um, certain kinds of mass demonstrations, but these tend to be mass demonstrations in a time of revolution. And I like that comparison because, um, you know, anyway, I, I, I won't get, I won't, I say something at the very end, which also shows, I think, the weak points of, of, um, of mass demonstrations similar to sex, that there's something fleeting about it, what you should really want in your life, I would argue, and what I think all of, not, maybe not all of us, but what many of us aspire to is something that is more meaningful and more anchored and more solid. And sex is not that, and mass demonstrations don't provide that. They make us feel... Like we're doing something great and enjoyable and wonderful in the moment. But then when we look back and we ask ourselves and um, we say that this is not where long term change actually happens. And what you need for that is something which is more boring, which is voting and voting might be in that sense akin to marriage. Right. Well, so so
0: a couple of things. Right. Hobsbawm was a communist. I mean, maybe <laughs> I'm maybe I'm slurring him here a little bit.
1: No, he was. He was a Marxist. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean,
0: he's a Marxist scholar, but I mean more than that, right? I don't know. Maybe that's slurring him. I don't know his biography that well. I haven't read I haven't read No, uh, no, he was I think
1: pretty much maybe he he was mostly an unrepentant Marxist.
0: Yeah. Um and and you know, so I was musing a little bit about my you know, college era romanticism of my own and sort of uh even though coming from, though not particularly raised, but, and from a softer variant of sort of, uh, you know, Yugoslavia was not, was not, uh, was not hard communism in the way that, that other countries were. But still, I, 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 I knew well enough that, that, you know, I was being, uh, I don't know, transgressive by sort of romanticizing this stuff even back then. But it, it took me a while to, to properly internalize um, that you know, actually how how well I don't know. I, I, I think it's fair to say one one should one should deplore people who who romanticize this sort of stuff. Um like, you know, John Reed who went into the Soviet Union and and, you know, he's buried at the in the walls of the Kremlin now and um that sort of useful idiocy sort of stuff. Um and I think your 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 parallels to to, you know, romantic love and, and sex and the rest of this is I, I think it's actually Kind of spot on because what you're really talking about is I mean people make people make really dumb decisions when they're when they're when they're besotted um, and they 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 uh, often make fools of themselves and so you know it's funny when you really think about it is is um, I think Fiona Hill had a piece this morning uh, in the New York Times talking about um, what the Russians did and didn't do and the extent to which we have empowered them by. By inflating their capacities and "quote unquote" electing Donald Trump in 2016, and how silly it is, how basically we've done this to ourselves. It's it's basically, in a way, the romantics uh, in uh, in opposing Trump are are useful idiots. They're not useful idiots in the same way that that communist sympathizers at the height of the Cold War were, because they haven't given a gift of that sort, that kind of propaganda gift that level of propaganda gift of legitimizing a completely different and uh, opposing ideology as, you know, people like John Reed did. Um, but nevertheless, they have, I think, given quite a gift to uh, to Putin and his cronies. I mean, Fiona, in her piece, uh, gestures at this in the sense that uh, it became then a thing that, you know, even, even before his own people— uh, the, the, the the sort of idea that, that this mastermind regime of Putin's was able to install or, you know, tip the election. Uh, that's a, that's, that's, it's, it's both not true and a gift to like build up these jackasses into something bigger than they are. So yeah, you know, I mean, just like people lose their heads over, over sex and romance and act, act the fools. Uh, so I think a lot of our, 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 you know, uh, hardy resistance folk, uh, you know, if 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 historiography is done properly, we will be shown to be a bunch of idiots, useful idiots. I hope
1: you're right, and and they should really know better. And I hope that they'll feel some sense of shame when all of this is done. Um, you know, but look, we we we're all we're all um, prone to this kind of behavior. I mean, I. For me, it was when I was in college, but um, but we all, so I don't know, I think, I don't know if I've talked about it much on the podcast, um, but uh, I think we've definitely talked about it in private that I was like a pseudo-socialist in, in undergrad, and I was obsessed with Chomsky, and I thought like teach-ins and sit-ins and even die-ins, I actually organized a die-in at Georgetown. We What's a die-in? A, a die-in is when you get like 50 people to just lay on the ground as if they're dead. Oh, so as if. Yeah, yeah, not, I mean. No, it's not but. like a group
0: suicide or something. <laughs> yeah. And then you chickened out after like 10 of your colleagues <laughs> off themselves.
1: Yes, exactly. Okay. So you're kind of stationary and then like people, it's, it's an incredible image. And for those of you who have actually been to Georgetown University on the campus, there's a main square that's actually called Red Square, oddly enough, um, as if, you know, as maybe some kind of communist reference. I don't actually remember why it's called that. But, um, (laughs) But, you know, if you're walking through Red Square and there's 50 people like lying down as if they're dead, I mean, that's a very striking visual. And what you do then is you get people's attention and someone will walk around passing out pamphlets and explaining to the passerby, that this is actually what we're standing for. This is what we're trying to draw attention to. In this case, it was about the Iraq War in 2003. Do and you, it was those,
0: yeah, yeah. Do you do you did you ever encounter any of the the work of the sort of um, uh, the renegade philosophical? Like, I guess they were they were part of the '68 movement very broadly, but they were sort of fringy. The Situationists.
1: Remind me who, so who are the major ones? Well,
0: the, the major guy that sort of was sort of behind all of it. There were some other sort of small ones, but this guy called Guy Debord. Do you ever, do you ever encounter oh, I've his heard stuff? of him.
1: I never really read his stuff. Though. Yeah. I mean, I his stuff think. is
0: kind of like, you know, this, uh, fragmentary surrealist stuff, but I, I remember he ended up killing himself. Cause like, like all great people, he's a massive depressive and a psycho, but like, <laughs> but he, he, um, um, whatchamacallit, um, Guy Debord, uh, I remember just because you're talking about this as a as a visual and a protest against against the Iraq War uh, for Vietnam, he actually he and his band of of lunatics um, I think either broke into a morgue or somehow managed to get like a bunch of dead bodies and then dumped them into the Seine in Paris. And that was their protest against huh. against against the Vietnam War. Never mind a bunch of bunch of freaking college students lying down on a on a square and then being that's photographed. Actually, that's, that's,
1: actually that's rather clever.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a that's an image for you. Dead bodies floating floating down the river, and it's it's all on the on the back of a uh, of a you know a, an actual robbery where they that, huh. that's that's protest. You know? I mean, it,
1: I mean, it sounds like it's illegal, but oh yeah, creative. yeah, for sure.
0: Well, I mean, again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh,
1: yes uh <laughs> but look i remember here just to give people a little bit more of a visual like what we would also do in red square um from i think it was from the moment that the iraq war started we had a continuous 24-hour presence in the square and we would always and we had tents and we always had at least a few people sleeping so until the war ended the idea was the, the invasion We would always, someone would always be there 24 hours a day. So we would take turns sleeping in the tents and then we would kind of hang out there and some kind of like socialist person would like play guitar and we would sing songs. And I remember, even though I guess, I mean, you two are kind of corporate, but one of the songs we would sing was one by you two. Hmm. We're we we're one, but we're not the same. We, we have to carry each other. That just like my little uh, rendition. That, yeah. I mean, it's a famous song. It's yes. a one, it's a beautiful song. And it's actually one of those songs that people sometimes play at their weddings and it's completely inappropriate because it's not actually a song about two people coming together. It's a song about two people coming apart.
0: So, <laughs> tell me tell me you're like what the No no I it's fine I it's, but tell me something um I feel like even even at the height of my my uh college period um I I was not that idealistic basically I mean there was like there was always a sort of a, a, a hard level of skepticism running through all of it you know So I I I would never have at any point um, have identified as a, as, as a proper leftist, um, you know, certain kind of uh, nihilist slash anarchist temptations playing in punk rock bands and things like that always sort of set me up as a, as a, as a comfortable critic, but not ever as a, as a positive activist. So talk to me about your change, because in, in a lot of ways I, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've always comfortably worn this kind of, uh, perpetual outsiderness of not feeling like I'm on any team. So I don't know, like, where's your transformation on this? Like, where did you abandon um, singing U2 songs on squares?
1: <laughs> so, um, th- so the rock war, it- it's all around that time. So we we spent hours upon hours. We were so devoted to stopping the war, which sounds silly to think that we as some college students and in coordination with other campuses and trying to build a national movement, we thought that we could be part of this broader effort to to stop the war. And um, we organized the die-ins, teach-ins, we had the tent-in. So all these different activities that we were doing. And then if you recall in February, um, what was it? 2000, yeah, February, 2003, so before the before the Iraq war actually started, which I think started in March, there was a coordinated show of protests throughout the world where I think it must have been something like 10 million or more people in cities across the globe came out to, to kind of uh, state their opposition and to speak out against the Bush administration's plans and all this. And we thought we had like the cliches about people power. And we thought that if you had enough people who spoke out, that we could actually change the course of history or whatever and then then the war actually happened and then i think that at the towards later in 2003 i started to think my think to myself we we put all this time into trying to stop this and we couldn't and then why couldn't we stop it and then you look at the bush administration's efforts and you see a small group of ideologically committed individuals who knew each other in grad school like Paul Wolfowitz and the neocons and all you know these various people and obviously Cheney Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld are part of the story but they weren't like they weren't the true believers but there were true believers who really thought that if they could just capture the apparatus of foreign policy they could finally realize this obsession with getting rid of Saddam Hussein and so on And so there was like this weird incongruence that here you have tens of millions of people throughout the world who were saying, no, we have to stop the war. And then you had this very small group of ideologues who said, we want a war. And then for me, that was a very instructive lesson that it wasn't about millions of people. It wasn't necessarily about mass movements. Sometimes you needed to be part of the system from within and to have ideas that ideas actually mattered and that ideas could change the world. And in this case, they happened to be bad ideas. Regarding um, uh, Saddam Hussein, the Iraq war, there were some ideas the neocons had that I became more sympathetic to over time, which is a different story around um, democracy promotion and, and things like that. But um, I just I think I realized I didn't want to spend the rest of my life on the outside looking in. I didn't want to be that person who was in his 30s or 40s with a with a makeshift sign in like colored marker that says stop the war when the people who could really make those decisions were in the white house or in Congress. And they were the ones who could decide and then ignore the masses who were protesting. Hmm. I never wanted to feel powerless again. And then I decided then to kind of shift, shift my approach. What's interesting
0: about it is, I mean, I was, you sort of went there yourself, but I, 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 uh, um, I was just two, two quibbles with the the narrative is, is that, um, I, yes, you know there was uh, maybe uh, sort of an ide fix about Saddam Hussein, but there's a there's a deeper ideology that that motivated that, and it's uh, it's a broader worldview uh, ultimately, which I think you've come more than uh, to terms with in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I, I, I think Say I, a bit
1: more that. What do you, to, <laughs>
0: well, no, I mean, I, well, just to, to even back up a little bit more, I, you know, you said that they all knew each other in, in grad school. I, is that, is that actually true? Like basically I did, did, uh, um, you know, I mean, I think it, it has more to do with just sort of DC networking than anything else. It's not like, I'm not sure where Paul Wolfowitz went to school I don't think, but it was and, part
1: of look. But it was part of like the Straussian like you Chicago scene. Certainly, some of them knew each other from that.
0: Yeah, but you know, even that's like that's one of those things. I, I've in, you know, since the Iraq War, quite frankly, I've I've been uh, both sort of fascinated by the the whole uh, weird conspiracy theory that like Straussians somehow that like that that explains something. And so as a result, I've you know, I've not devoted a lot of mental energy to try and sort of get into Strauss and understand what's there. But insofar as like over time and via osmosis and in general, working at the American interest and, and, you know, just sort of talking to people, you get a sense of what Strauss is about. It seems like, you know, the the whole Strauss thing is, is more an excuse for people to socialize in DC and, Oh, maybe, you know, their uncle or something, uh, uh, took a class from Strauss or like bumped into him in, at at Chicago or something like that. But it's it's as an ideology, it's actually tells you it tells you not that much. And it was one of those things that was like really weirdly overstated. It's more like the entire neocon crew, whatever, whatever however you want to define that, I think they just sort of knew each other in DC. And it they're not that different, in fact, from, you know, and there's a, a broad continuity Uh, From the broader sort of like democracy community. So that's all I mean, ultimately. And that's so it's interesting that 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 that, you know, you you frame this in terms of of uh, power and powerlessness and understanding how things happen in the world. Um, And yet, you know, uh, I think it's fair to say that that you're pretty neoconish. No.
1: Whoa. (laughs) Demir. Whoa. Go on. Go on. I can't believe you said that. No, come on. <laughs> I'm just trolling you. Yeah, I know. No, but look, I look. But on a, on a more serious note, I um, I people attack me for being in the Ocon a lot, and um, it, you know, it used to bother me. Be and I always try to explain carefully and clinically that there are important differences here. Um, and one of them is, I don't believe in democracy promotion through the use of force and, um, my opposition to the Iraq war is one of the defining moments in my life. And I feel like it is in some ways, the original sin that led to many other original sins. And I've never, and I think, I think that I felt that way for a reason at the time. And I think I was right at the time for, and as we've known more and more as time has passed, but um do i but I, did i become more sympathetic and even more than sympathetic to the idea that us power could be used for good and by here i don't mean military power i mean i mean economic influence the leverage that we have with our allies did i come to believe that we should proactively and aggressively support democracy abroad yes and that's no secret. I would never apologize for that. And that's actually one of the few consistent themes that an- animates what I do and why I do it. I mean, we can talk about like the woke stuff and all that other the other stuff that we, um, that we do care about, but what do I care about the most? I, I care about a mission that we have abroad. I just don't want it to be coercive. I don't want it to be through force. I don't want it to be about promoting liberal ideology. I want to promote procedural democracy abroad and to allow Arabs and Muslims and hopefully others, but I guess it's mostly Arabs and Muslims who need this because it's the most um, undemocratic part of the world, to make their own decisions and choices and to have self-determination. So that's always, I can't imagine a situation where 10 or 20 or 30 years down the road, I'll ever move away from that fundamental commitment. If that, if that sounds like neo neoconservatism to some people, so be it. But really for me, what it means is I think that other people's cultures and nations should have the chance to experience um, the right to make their own decisions and the right to make stupid decisions, which is something I'm very passionate about, that people should be able to vote. For terrible presidents like Donald Trump And that we should respect that And that, that colors everything I do and say So um,
0: for, I mean, first, 1st uh, I'm not sure that I, Is it true that, that, that Arabs in the Middle East Are the least democratic people in the world? The, Middle,
1: mean, e- the Middle East is the most um, authoritarian region In the world today, by far
0: how, how does that balance against Given the fact that China has so many people?
1: Oh, I mean region. I mean, there are obviously. I mean, China is a country. Uh, so doesn't doesn't
0: doesn't, of, doesn't the, the absolute number? Again, I I don't mean to quibble yeah, on yeah, you yeah, with yeah, this. Sure, so There's the absolute sure. number of Chinese oppressed by by the Chinese regime. Uh, counterbalance that at all? No, like there's yeah, enough yeah, I mean, democracies. There's
1: only, that, yeah, there's only. I mean, there's only so many Arabs you have in the world. Um, I mean, so, just in
0: relative terms. Like, doesn't doesn't the the however many billion Chinese there are? Like, uh, yeah, here, yeah, okay,
1: like, but don't Asia, need to quibble that. But like, but East Asia. So, what, East Asia as a region is more democratic than the Middle East insofar as. Most other East Asian countries are not authoritarian yeah, or okay. are much less authoritarian than China. No, okay. and there are democratic successes, as we know, in East Asia.
0: Right, noted. Though so, again, I think okay. like, <laughs> what what democracy <laughs> what democracy means in Japan is a is a different thing oh, than what well, we like on, to but think. J- but okay, no, j- again, what I was going to praise you on here is that like the, the the shoddy that that like I think that that overlaps with my priors in a lot of ways is the shoddy that says minimalist democracy is the good and, and et cetera. I think the part where, where I think you have the most in common with the neocons in the most bad slash dangerous way is that the neocons themselves, uh, and you expressed it as you were just uh, talking earlier, is just like, wanted to do good in the world and you want to do good in the world. Like ultimately you're not, you're not a, uh, some kind of, uh, uh, you know, um you're not you're not as 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 cold and disinterested in this and say that like, well, you know, I've done the research and I have seen the light that democracy is the, you know, I don't know how you want to even justify it in non like explicitly moral terms. But let's say the most efficient and the most stable and uh leads to best outcomes system. And uh, you know, therefore, and maybe even like throw in some sort of ethical thing that it's it's uh there's a, a sense of justice but no you you go into it for, with like a a proper moral term like doing good america needs to do good in the world by promoting the system of democracy not violently fair that's a different that's an important distinction from the neoconservative thing but but it all it always struck me it struck me at the time of the iraq war that there was a a a, a revolting missionary element to it to me ultimately that i just found insufferable. Like we are saving the world that we are doing good. And it's that sort of thing that, that has always irritated the shit out of me, um, about the neocons that has irritated the shit out of me about like most things. And, and quite frankly, irritates me about the current moment. And that sort of, again, uh, righteousness, uh, that, that underpins a lot of the sort of, uh, resistance at this point, which, which it bears repeating, Uh, a lot of those people are neoconservatives right now.
1: Yeah. Okay. There's a lot there. Uh, Okay. What to unpack here? (laughs) Pick (laughs) pick
0: and choose, pick and choose.
1: Look, I mean, one thing, and I think I've tried to get better at this over time, is when I do talk about democracy promotion abroad, I never want to pretend that democracy is a panacea, that it it is this kind of... um, magical solution that makes everyone's life better. I try to be realistic and say there are trade-offs. You know, for for one, Islamist parties will probably come to power in various Muslim-majority states. It will undermine certain short-term American national security interests, um, so on and so forth. But I do believe that on balance, it is better for the world in a practical sense. because, And one of the reasons is actually not very ide- idealistic. And I, I do try to emphasize this is that democracy is the best way to regulate and manage conflict. That if you have groups of people who hate each other, the goal is to find ways to get them to hate each other peacefully. And that's also how I feel about the US. I don't believe that Liberals will ever be able to defeat conservatives or vice versa because there's too many of each side, and the only thing that we can do is learn to live with learn to live with deep difference so in that sense there's something very practical about democracy, and that 's why I emphasize the more minimalist conceptions of procedural democracy because really what I want to do is to prevent and is to prevent conflict and the best way to prevent conflict is through um respecting democratic outcomes and not expecting a whole lot more than that. But there is also this moral aspect, this ethical aspect, which is about, um, which does have to do with some of my religious commitments that I think the great monotheisms, they all say that every individual has a fundamental human worth. There, there is something called human dignity and that no government and certainly no repressive government should um aspire to take that away from any individual. Uh, and that every individual should be able to realize their full potential to the extent possible, which means that the government shouldn't be keeping them down. And I don't mean that in the libertarian sense, because I don't really have a problem with state intervention in the economy and redistribution. I'm actually quite supportive of some of that. Um, so, is that an ethical component? Is that a moral component? Yeah. And I guess I would say that um, this this is, I think, where we do part ways. And I think we'll have to save this for another episode. I really did want to talk to you about your wonderful new uh, essay for Wisdom of Crowds, which just came out uh, just the other day.
0: We stick it behind the paywall, Shadi.
1: Well, no, it's not.
0: No, it's our not. discussion of the essay. Oh, my like, God. No, no, the essay no, can oh, be free. God,
1: no. Oh, no Wait, No, man. We're going to have to save it in time because I think it's actually I wanted to do like a proper interview of Demir where I just went paragraph by paragraph because I think I think I was getting close to figuring out where we part ways. But I need to hear more from you okay. to figure out where the point of divergence is.
0: I'm good. Right, we can do that. <laughs> I'm down. <laughs>
1: Wait, where was I going with all that?
0: Uh, we were talking about moralism <laughs> and and uh, maybe how you are not a neocon because I was because saying me, that the the because, ultimate because again, let me just reiterate and restate it maybe in a way that that'll that'll prompt you to 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 get to address what I'm getting at. I think that the the real the real problem with the Iraq War, um, well, not with the Iraq War, with the motivations for the Iraq War was that they were so messianic so convinced of uh their own um correctness in a way that to me really points to like the the real blind spot of these people um not that they misjudge this or the other like they misjudge the situation on the ground they they it's that they were blinded to it because they were so sure that they were doing good and that to me it's 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 that lack of humility and that lack of skepticism that is most dangerous in people, and that's where a lot of my sort of orneriness comes from for a lot of this stuff
1: and and this is where I think we very we very much i think agree on the point about humility, and this is where there's a tension in my own thinking and actually, one of my evangelical friends, Matthew Kaminck. Who, whose work I love, um, but you know maybe that's for another time. He, he I remember I told him about the, the the book project I'm working on now that is that is attempting to revive democracy promotion, but in a kind of interesting, counterintuitive way. Yeah, and he said, Shadi, you know, there's this side of you that I see when you talk about supporting democracy abroad, and it seems to be very much intention with your more recent work about diversity and pluralism in the U S, which is really about epistemological humility yeah, about being very careful about absolutes. So he's, he, so he's challenged me, like how do you kind of square the circle on this? And I won't be able to offer an answer right now, but it's interesting that actually one of the great books, which I confess I haven't read, but I've just heard it's really good <laughs> about the neoconservatives is called they knew they were right.
0: Is that Halbrun's book, or is that yeah?
1: it's Halbrun's book.
0: Yeah, yeah let's have, let's have Jacob on at some point. I think he'd be a really interesting person to talk about this. Yeah, I guess I have
1: to read the book though.
0: Well, we should both read it. I haven't read it, but like <laughs> I I know Jacob a little bit, so I mean, we could we could we could at least chat.
1: Yeah, and I I love the title of that because it does get to what I think. You're, you're right to point out is the real danger here is when people believe they are right, but you could also apply this to the best and the brightest of the Obama administration. And obviously the best and the brightest is a reference to David Halberstam's book about um, the whiz kids who are, were architects of the Vietnam war. So that's why when we say the best and the brightest, sometimes people forget that it's meant to be ironic. But these, the Obama administration, the very smart people who were involved, were the, in many ways the best and the brightest of their generation. But we saw the pitfalls of those. And there was a kind of intellectual arrogance from the Obama people, which always bothered me, and certainly from Obama himself. He had a lot of trouble engaging in self-criticism. And he's, he's really almost apologized for nothing. So someone, which is interesting because now we sort of um, idealize Obama as this this wonderful human being. And I don't doubt he was a moral man, certainly um, in terms of his family life and, and all that stuff. But he was not a humble man.
0: No, not at all. But, you know, the, the, the funny thing on that for me huh, is that I think... Whereas I think a lot of the people around Obama, especially like the lick spittles, like Ben Rhodes, um, who are not really worth grappling with uh, because they're not. I think Obama, in fact, um, I want to say he has nothing to apologize for. That's not quite right because he made mistakes and fine. Maybe he hasn't, he hasn't sort of uh, come to terms with them. But I do think that, that, um, there's an instinct to Obama, which I've argued before is actually quite consonant with Trump. And it it goes to, to the, the, the core of where, you know, however, sort of snarky I might get about democracy. I think there is something very, uh, clear here that, that two politicians that couldn't be more different are, I think, reacting to a certain kind of demand, uh, from the voter side about a certain kind of foreign policy. So, you know, uh, i and you and I have actually talked about this in previous episodes i think i think the obama' sin in libya was was uh listening to his cabinet ultimately and and actually uh going in at all um you know the the question on syria is a is a is a complex one that again at you know whatever we are at like fifty five minutes in is now not worth <laughs> not worth opening that can of worms um but ultimately i I see both Obama and trump as 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 uh enacting a certain kind of correction to a certain kind of exuberance that existed before um, whether there's something to apologize there for uh you know i i i I can understand why uh one can say that Obama is uh full of himself and arrogant, but still huh, you know I don't know. You know, I, I I think it's 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 overstating the fact that, that there's a, a huge sort of like apology agenda there that that's just needs to be uh, fulfilled.
1: Well, look, I think that part of the problem with Obama is that he saw himself as a vessel for history. Mm-hmm. And even the way he would use, which I, I guess he, he was a, repur- a repurposing of Martin Luther King's um, quote about the arc of history bending towards justice – the fact that um, Obama was so enamored by that by that quote specifically—that um, was first of all anyone who says the arc of history bends towards justice—I mean that's a red flag unless you're Martin Luther King Jr. Um, because it does suggest this idea that it, and the way sometimes people talk about history, it's almost as if they're talking about like divine providence that there is this moral force in the universe. And I think actually Raz Douthat had had a good piece about this in the New York Times the other day where he talked about that secular people, when they talk about 2020, it's like 2020 is the author. 2020, yeah, what yeah. more will the script writers do in this crazy year? And what they are basically talking about is God in this in a secular, almost atheistic way. And maybe and certainly many of them don't believe but it's interesting that we refer – we use what is effectively theological theological language, that there is a great author, and it's not just humans who are agents of their own destiny, that there is something beyond us. And I think you even made a comment on Twitter – Somehow, somewhat to this effect when you were talking about Europeans, I can't recall it. Do you remember that?
0: I do. I do. I mean, I, and then people jumped on me to say it was a mistranslation, but there was some, <laughs> there was some, because I don't speak German. So there was some clip of some, some uh, um, um, TV announcer saying basically that. A vengeful nature has taken her revenge on on trump basically for with oh COVID. Yeah, yeah
1: that was it yeah,
0: and and, yeah. and again i don't know maybe it was a mistranslation and it was some but it was a it was a guy it was a german doing the mistranslation from build and so you know whatever <laughs> maybe maybe he hates hates the sort of righteous uh uh, uh eco left or whatever there so but people like,
1: use this language all the time i mean karma even the fact like Oh, like you know, Trump. Trump was um, inviting COVID because of karma or whatever. Like, no even- nonsense, obviously. Yeah. Wait, what?
0: Nonsense, obviously. Yeah.
1: What do you mean? What? Well, sorry. Wait. What do you mean? It's nonsense. It's
0: nonsense. I mean, it's it's <laughs> clearly this sort of weird, weird displaced religious impulse among among secularists who who. uh
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so it's amazing. Sure. Here's a people who have turned their back on religion, who pretend to be the most rational people ever. Yeah. And but it also says something more deeply about the American psyche that, um, you know, even when we give up on religion, we still indulge in Christian assumptions and Christian precepts. So, and, and we don't even realize it, really.
0: I, you know, maybe, maybe, and maybe this is a, a good place to end it since we're we're coming up on an hour. But you know, one of the things. And we can pick this up because I know, I know you have a lot of problems with Obama. And, you know, I find myself on the center right, more or less with a lot of my instincts, but I had far fewer problems. Even when I was at the magazine, just like talking to my more conservative friends, I, I never had the problem with Obama that a lot of people did. And it's maybe because I've, 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 I've projected onto him uh, a certain kind of, of, of Machiavellian cynicism that is not worth that is that is not earned by him. I think I think he perhaps at times uh, was enamored of his own skill, his own rhetorical skill. And I think maybe that sometimes got the better of him. Um, but I think when you you take a step back, and this is why I think the, the parallels between Obama and Trump are more productive rather than not. Um, it's it's I think Obama saw himself as like, okay, the whole post Cold War drift, um, the whole idea that we're going to remake the world is bullshit. We're not. It's been a disaster. Obama came of age and came of political prominence in opposition to the Iraq War, um, and uh, I think it was a it was a, a a nasty compromise. He was badgered into it by his staff and by his military advisors um, to do this thing that Afghanistan was a good war and, um, and uh, Iraq was the bad war. He ultimately, all he wanted to do as he said himself is nation building at home, uh, which guess what? America first, you know, and that is um, to me, the actual fact of Obama, which you can say is uh, bad foreign policy on the merits because American leadership matters, or you can say it leads to abhorrent outcomes like the genocide in Syria, and he has blood on his hands. I'll I'll grant you that move if you want to make it. Hmm. Um, But I I, I do think that Obama wasn't unaware of what he was doing, even though he would perhaps fall in love with his words every so often and spend a lot of time crafting them. Um, And so, you know, I mean, it's one of those things, like, I think even if we had Obama on... The, uh, podcast. the podcast, <laughs> he would never own up to this, but it would be a fantastic conversation to just try and get him to at least like, to unpack that a little bit. Because I, I do think he's, he's easily one of the smartest uh, presidents, certainly in my lifetime, one of the most introspective and interesting and smart presidents that we've had. So it'd be fascinating to unpack that somehow. But that's how I see Obama anyway.
1: Yeah, but people who, people who are as brilliant as Obama can also be quite dangerous, just in a way that a very dumb person like well i, I don 't know if I should call Trump dumb per se. I think he's brilliant in a kind of very narrow political sense, except maybe he's not as we're finding out now, but we'll see um, but brilliance is a dangerous thing, and um it can be at least, and you know we've talked people you know, listeners will know that we often refer to mark lilla's book the reckless spine about how otherwise brilliant people are tempted to dark thoughts and and end up, you know, promoting policies which hurt people in various ways. I mean, I think that um Obama could explain if he sat with us why he did what he did and it would sound very impressive. But that's different than engaging in an exercise of humility where you try where you're interested in listening to other people to understand where you went wrong. And this is an attack that I think, you know, not to say that, um, you know, neither of us could necessarily, (laughs) neither of us are probably as brilliant as Barack Obama, but I think one, one thing that we're a little bit better on is that we listen, at least we listen to each other. I don't know if we always listen to other people the way that we should, and perhaps we can be better, definitely be better at that, especially if, were like especially annoying people, but um, but I don't think that Obama is someone who can sit down and listen and really absorb something and reflect, and then come back and say, "Hey, I've reformulated my view on this." He's also older, so maybe that's part of it too. But does I, that make sense?
0: It it makes sense. I I I just disagree with the read. I think I think okay. that I think I've always thought that Obama. I've said this to, in fact, again, conservative friends who are uh, international relations realists. I said, Obama is the only, and this is the most like uh, cold-blooded uh, interna- IR realist president you will ever have in your lifetime. And if we could get Obama onto the podcast, tie him down to the couch, inject him with truth serum, I think that's what he would say. He would say, I have no regrets because my priorities were to actually pull America back from a lot of nonsense okay. in the world. Oh my
1: God. But Tamir, that's for someone to say, I have no regrets. I, so this also goes back to our special bonus episode la- the other week where we did actually talk about um, whether you have regrets in your own personal mm-hmm. life. Now that was, that's a paid, that's the bonus episode. So that was actually like, you know, uh, not to go on a tangent, that was such a cool little bonus episode and um, what was it called? Just if people want to find it on the website.
0: Oh, I don't remember.
1: Um, um, I'm going to find it right now. So if you guys really want to learn more about Demir. Yeah, you're really, you're his really personal life. You're
0: growing into this, this, <laughs> yes, this marketing so officer.
1: So you can find it right on the homepage. Uh, the title is the tyranny of therapy. So mm-hmm. we talked about um, whether we think psychologists and therapy is is good. And also whether or not we have regrets in our own personal lives but I'm skeptical of anyone who would sit down on the couch and say, "I have no regrets." Especially if you're responsible for a country of 330 million people, how could you not have regrets? No,
0: of course he would. I have regrets and I mean,
1: about like earlier today.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. I'm and and again, I I I don't think Obama's some sort of not not nearly the level of monster than I am. So I, I think he would he would in fact have regrets and actually feel them in a way. Um, But you know
1: what? I don't think he would admit to it. I I can picture a situation where Obama would sit down and say, I got that wrong. I made a mistake that hurt people.
0: So, Shadi, here's the plan. What we need to do is get Obama on the podcast. I don't know how we're going to do it, but I think that has to be our goal. Huh. I like this. Honestly— I think this is the reach goal for everything because it, it really will be a culmination after that. We just like, why, you know, we're done. So we're done. Just close it up.
1: <laughs> okay. Once we get big enough, like I might, like, I know we're obviously kind of joking here, but if we continue this podcast and we build the community for another 10 years or so, and we get to be like the Joe Rogan of intellectual podcasts in 10 years, I think we should really try to get Obama on.
0: The truth is, honestly, I think Obama would really have a good time with us.
1: Oh, I oh, I don't doubt that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he would doubt it, but no,
0: hey. I don't think he'd doubt it either. I th- I think <laughs> again, I'm basing this on very little, but I think it'd be a good time. All right, Sean. Okay, this
1: this was okay. This was I really enjoyed this. All right, good. Me too. Me too. All and right. we we'll continue in the bonus episode in just a minute or two and I hope that those of you are, who are paid members can continue with us as we I don't even know where we'll end up going. We covered a lot of ground in this one and this was maybe close to the um, platonic ideal of the train wreck episode that one of our friends and podcast enthusiast tom barson often talks about that sometimes we have an episode that just goes all over the place and it's like a beautiful train wreck yeah um so thank you guys for listening and if you like this, oh, I should say, let's do a little pitch for Obama's piece, which is available to all to for Obama's people for piece. free.
0: So sorry. <laughs> Wait, are you? Did you just conflate me with Obama? That's oh, look, really... I
1: did, but I meant the piece where you talk about Obama. Yeah, so yeah, it's the nearest yeah. piece on the website. Um, the title is "Why Idealism Is the Enemy of Democracy." I hope we'll have a chance to talk about it next time on the podcast because it is really an excellent piece. And I really encourage all you guys to read it carefully and reflect on its wisdom.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks, Shadi.
1: All right. Yes. See you. Okay. Talk Talk to you soon. Demir. Bye.
0: Bye.